thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 29th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. Nineteen fifty-six. We have not journeyed very far into the future from our last episode. Nope. Red scare still happening. Still happening. <laughs> the fifties. <laughs> yep. So unsurprisingly, Eisenhower still president here in the states. Mm-hmm. We also had the Montgomery bus boycott going on for almost the entire length of this year. It ran from December of fifty-five to December of fifty-six. Yes. And then um, Supreme Court decision Browder v. Gale officially made segregation illegal on the buses. Yeah. So that's good news. They really That is good news. They really stuck to that boycott and result. I mean, you really got to you got to stick to the boycott because if if they sense that you're just going to give up on it, what incentive do they have to change? Didn't we learn anything from Gandhi? Didn't we learn anything from Gandhi? Exactly. Wow. Okay. Speaking of Gandhi. Yeah. What are the odds? And this year, this was very interesting. Pakistan becomes the first official Islamic Republic. It is the first country yeah, to which do is that. A surprise to me. That wouldn't have been my um, guess, but hey. And also it makes you think what was going on in all of these other countries with mostly Islamic populations. Yeah. They were all under colonial rule is my guess. Oh, wow. Also in international news, Grace Kelly becomes Princess of Monaco. So that's very interesting. Quits her Hollywood career to go have fun as a princess. Sure. In pop culture news, this was a big year for Elvis. He charts for Mm -hmm. the first time in the US with Heartbreak Hotel and has a number of events go on. Elvis is on the rise. (laughs) Elvis is on the rise. Be on the lookout. He's on the move. (laughs) And also the first Eurovision Song Contest was broadcast this year. So that's pretty fun news for Europe. I wish that we got to participate. Eurovision. What a time. (laughs) What a time to be alive. So let us go through the list of nominees from 1956. The first of them alphabetically is Around the World in 80 Days, an adaptation of the Jules Verne novel about a man who makes a bet that he can travel around the world in 80 days in the late 19th century. It stars David Niven, Kantin Plas, Shirley MacLaine. It is directed by Michael Anderson and written by James Poe, John Farrow, and S.J. Perelman. Nominated for eight Academy Awards, it won five of them. Best Motion Picture, Best Screenplay Adapted, Best Cinematography, Color, Best Film Editing, and Best Score of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. Up next is Friendly Persuasion, an American Civil War drama about a family of Quakers wrestling with their adherence to nonviolence in the face of an impending Confederate invasion. It stars Gary Cooper, Dorothy McGuire, and Anthony Perkins. It's directed by William Wyler, written by Michael Wilson. It was nominated for six, and it won zero. The next is Giant, a sweeping drama about cattle ranchers and oil men in Texas in the early 20th century. It stars Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, and James Dean, directed by George Stevens, written by Fred Gill and Ivan Moffat. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, and it won one for Best Director. Up next is The King and I, a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical about a British woman who is hired to teach the children of the King of Siam. It stars Ewell Brenner, Deborah Kerr, and Rita Moreno. It's directed by Walter Lang, written by Ernest Lehman. 
It's nominated for nine and won five. Best Actor for Yul Brenner, Best Art Direction, Color, Best Costume Design, Color, Best Scoring of a Musical Picture, and Best Sound Recording. And finally, we have The Ten Commandments, a retelling of the biblical story of Moses. It stars Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner, and Ann Baxter, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, and written by Aeneas McKenzie, Jesse L. Lasky Jr., Jack Garris, and Frederick M. Frank. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it won one for Best Special Effects. All right. Those are our nominees. The top five highest grossing movies of that year. Number one was The Ten Commandments. Number two, Around the World in 80 Days. Number three, Giant. Number four, Seven Wonders of the World. And number five, The King and I. So almost like a one-to-one highest incredible <laughs> stuff. grossing two yeah. nominees. And Seven Wonders of the World was a documentary that used Cinemascope or oh, something yeah. of the like. People were still riding that wave in 1956. We're still so impressed by widescreen at this point. In, Truly. In film history. So there were actually kind of a lot of notable Oscars things this year. It was the first year that all the Best Picture nominees were in color. So that's kind of a big deal for yeah. film history. And all four acting Oscars were given to different films, which is something that wouldn't happen again for almost 50 years to, until the 78th Academy Awards, which is kind of crazy to think Absolutely. about. Also, there was interesting stuff going on in the Best Original Story category because there was a mix-up, which makes the Academy look pretty silly when you hear about it. They accidentally nominated the writers of the wrong movie. <laughs> they were trying to nominate the writers of a film called High Society, and I guess there were two films called High Society. So they nominated the wrong set of writers who then had to withdraw their names, but that it also turned out that High Society was based on a play and so would not have been eligible for original story anyway. <laughs> yeah, so this is an instance of where the title of our podcast is literal. The Oscars yes. got it wrong. They were they were just wrong. <laughs> yep. And interestingly, Dalton Trumbo, who we talked about three years ago for writing Roman Holiday, was again uh, nominated under a pseudonym this year, and he ended up winning for The Brave Ones, but under his pseudonym Robert Rich. So Dalton Trumbo having a great time in his career, all while being blacklisted Secretly. from officially working. Secretly yeah. having a great time in his career. Other news, James Dean, who we mentioned, of course, was in Giant this year, is the only actor to receive a second posthumous nomination for acting. So pretty wild. Two after he died. It's, yeah. And then finally, as we mentioned, Seven Wonders of the World is in Cinescope. They're still really experimenting with widescreen. There's a lot of different widescreen technologies happening. So this year we have a couple of pictures, I think, that were in Todd AO, which was Mike Todd's widescreen process. You got to respect him wanting to have the one that catches on be the one with his name in yeah. it. So what widescreen it's going to be is not quite settled down by 1956. But people were still very interested in it. Again, you can see so much stuff. You could see so much stuff. So as we mentioned, the winner was Around the World in 80 Days. We struggled a little bit, interestingly, to come up with what the contemporaneous consensus was about the win. I mean, obviously, it was nominated for, I think, the second most. It was nominated for eight, and nine was the most nominees that year. Mm -hmm. And it won five of them. So it's not like it was a fluke 
choice. Clearly, the Academy was fairly united when they made that decision. Yes. Historical consensus now is it's one of the worst winners. It frequently appears on these lists of things that should not have won Best Picture. But oddly enough, a lot of times this discussion does not tell us what people feel should have won Best Picture. That seems to be missing. So we couldn't quite gather, at least of the nominees, what people think is the best movie of the year. We'll get to something that wasn't nominated that is now widely considered to be one of the best pictures ever. So maybe that's the answer. But yeah, all we know for sure is people do not feel that Around the World in 80 Days should have won. But Maddie, do you feel it should have won? Are you mad that it won? I actually am mad that it won. Yeah. Are you mad that it won? I'm not. And not to give away my answers for the rest of these questions, but we joked in our 2007 episode about like, what if I just said yes or no to everything? What would that mean? And I'm kind of in that place now. All these movies were more watchable than I thought they were going to be, but they're also all deeply flawed. (laughs) Yes. And yes. And I feel similarly to you, but I'll just leave it. I'll save what I, mm-hmm. why I said yes to that for the conversation. Okay. So let us go through the other ones. The next is Friendly Persuasion. Would you have been mad if it won? No. Me neither. Giant, would you have been mad if it won? No. Same here. The King and I, would you have been mad if it won? No. I think also no. And the Ten Commandments, would you have been mad if it won? No. Me neither. <laughs> okay. So you're just, you just are agreeing with the consensus that around the world in 80s. Well, it's not that I'm agreeing with the consensus, but I will say it was my least favorite of the five movies. Okay. So that felt like, I don't think we've made the right decision if I feel like there are four movies that are that are better. Better candidates. Yeah. All right. I guess that means it's a one picture of disagreement that we talk about at first. And then I guess we'll just go through the rest of them in alphabetical order and see where we come out. Maybe this discussion will help clarify for me which one I think actually should have won. I think that will be helpful for us. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm with you. I, I was surprised by how watchable all of these movies were. <laughs> and many of them I did not expect to be a good time. And then they mostly were. We didn't say it, but guys, so many of these movies are so long. Uh, apparently, a movie has to be three hours to be a movie in these days. My goodness. One of them is three hours and 40 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Another, I think, is 320. And one of them is about three. Oh, boy. So good. Okay. Job. So Around the World in 80 Days starts with a short documentary presented by Edward R. Murrow. It's so weird. Who is smoking. Of course. <laughs> he gives a little presentation about George Melies A Trip to the Moon, which is that very famous silent picture where the guys go to the moon and has a face. And it's- well, and you've all seen the yeah. image. The most famous image, I think, is the moon with like a bullet in its eye. Yeah. So that's like the first 12 minutes of the movie as he's talking about like, look at what pictures could be. And then we cut to the actual film. This movie (laughs) barely has any plot, to be fair. Yes. It starts off with David Niven. He's an English gentleman. He has a hard time keeping a manservant. He gets this new manservant, Kenton Floss, and also someone has robbed the Bank of England. And so he makes Mm -hmm. a bet that he can travel around the world in 80 days. All his weird British club friends are like, no way. And so he- It's impossible. He leaves on this journey. And I wrote down everywhere they stop. They stop in France, Spain, Italy, India, Hong Kong, Japan, the US, 
where they do San Francisco, the Wild Wild West, and then New York. I don't know why I said the Wild Wild West, but that's okay. (laughs) Because it was the Wild Wild West. Yeah. And then New York. And part of the way through the trip, an English inspector gets the idea that he is the person who robbed the Bank of England. That's how he is financing this trip. And he starts following him around and trying to arrest him for this crime. Mm -hmm. Along the way, they pick up an Indian princess who is played by the very Indian Shirley MacLaine. Oh boy. And she comes on the journey with them as well. It is pretty lackadaisical. It's it's really yep. just a travelogue. They are in no rush throughout the movie. I wrote down this was early in the movie too, but I wrote down I think after like Spain. Mm-hmm. Everything is taking so long. <laughs> Because they really are just spending their sweet time with each of the things, which to be fair, I think if I'm a viewer in 1956, I totally get it, right? Because the premise of it is kind of like, we're going to show you the world like you've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. And so they're spending all this time with showing you the French countryside from the hot air balloon and showing you the Spanish dancers in Spain and showing you the train ride through India and all the beautiful stuff you see there. And it just goes on (laughs) And on and on in all of those scenes. Yeah, so that was my thought as well. This movie is doing something that we don't expect movies to do now, which is to serve as a travelogue. International travel used to be incredibly expensive, so there was no way you'd ever see this. And it's not like you could just Google and bring up a YouTube video of Spanish dancers. And so my experience watching this movie is, except for a couple of parts, which were extremely racist, and the very long bullfighting scene, which I will be honest, I fast forwarded through... (laughs) Good for you. Um, I might have liked it more if I had. (laughs) I found this to be kind of a relaxing watch. Like you just sit back and I was lying in bed and I was just like, oh, yeah, look at India. That's nice. Yeah. We can get into the racist elements. But I also thought that the depiction of the Americans when they first got to San Francisco was the election was kind of funny. So there's a little bit of Not comedy. once they get into the wild, wild west. That part's bad. And then, yeah, yeah there were a couple of other things I liked. The Tadeo at times looks like a fisheye lens, which I thought was really interesting, especially early on in Canton's classes riding through England. I loved several of those. I think you're talking about when he's on like his penny farthing yeah. and the camera's up behind him. Mm-hmm. There were several great shots that were from the perspective of some piece of transportation. There's another great one when they're on the elephants and they were really cool looking. I liked those a lot. I love the miniatures. There are a couple miniature boats and there's a really fun train scene where the train is obviously a little miniature and I thought they were so cute, but I always enjoy a miniature. There is a great British tea time joke in this movie, which I really enjoyed. But yeah, I don't want to defend the very racist parts of this movie. I have no interest in that. The very racist parts were pretty rough. But by and large, it's just kind of like a relaxing watch. I mean, maybe if I had been in the right headspace for that, I would have enjoyed it more. But I think where I was, I was like, it's like nothing is happening. (laughs) It's so slow. I mean, it is fair. Nothing is happening. Should we get into the racist parts? Should we talk about that? Yeah. So we mentioned, oh, wait, first, when they first arrive in America, they're at a saloon in San Francisco and the piano player is Frank Sinatra. (gasps) Oh, yeah. This movie is also filled with cameos (laughs) of famous people from around the world. So Marlena Dietrich is in that scene, too. Charles Boyer is the French guy. County Flash. apparently was like a huge deal at the time everywhere other than america and england i believe on the posters he he was top billed because he was way more famous everywhere else than david niven right and i think some of that's not going to translate down to us either just the excitement of being like oh look at this cameo of this famous person because we're like right okay 
most of them we didn't recognize, yeah. which is why the Frank Sinatra one, I was like, what? What's <laughs> happening? Why is Frank Sinatra here? So, yeah. Once they leave San Francisco. Well, okay. So let's take a... It's before that. There's the issue in India, too. With Oh, yeah. Fair enough. So, yeah. France, Spain, Italy. You're pretty Fine. much okay. Then they get to India, and that's okay to a point. Like, they're taking the train ride through, and then they take an elephant through, and that's pretty fun. The elephant looks beautiful. I did like to see the elephant. Yeah. And then they come across a bunch of thuggies, a thuggy cult, who you may know from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. They pop up again in that movie. And they are about to sacrifice an Indian princess. And they have to like battle off these Indian savages to save this princess who is Shirley MacLaine. A white lady. Yeah. So that was bad. And you're like, oh, I didn't love that. Oh, didn't love this. Don't yeah. love anything where we're dealing with quote unquote natives. But then we get to San Francisco mm-hmm. and the comedy around American elections was pretty funny. Yeah. Well, and also I'll say that scene where a passport and that random guy start feeding each other yeah. was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and then they get to the West. And yes, what happens when they get to the wild, wild West? Well, they take a train ride and then very quickly become under attack from, again, natives. And it's just, it's it's real bad. It starts with like, they're about to be attacked by a different guy, right? Is the setup to this? He's about to have this face off with some other white guy mm-hmm. in the train. And then the attack happens. And then, of course, they're on the same side with each other. Right. Against the savage the natives. natives. Ugh. Who then kidnap Passepartout and they're going to Uh burn him alive as Uh they do their native dances around him. But then the Uh American cavalry comes to save him and you're like, yikes. It was a real yikes. My notes for this section are, yeesh, this Native American's attacking the train scene. And then all this America stuff is pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah. It's not great. I'll say, so the whole premise is he needs to get back to his club within the 80-day limit. And when he arrives back in England, he gets arrested on on suspicion of having robbed this bank. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they keep him there past the deadline, basically. And then they're like, okay, sorry that we arrested you. We actually found the real guy over in Brighton. And I was like, that's so little payoff for a thing that's been a, the running story of this entire movie yeah. is that he's under suspicion. And then at the end, they're just like, oh, never mind. It was someone else. And like, <laughs> I expected it to be someone we had met or something. No. <laughs> so. Just wasn't him. Ay, ay, ay. But it's interesting, too, because he's paying for the trip with all these new banknotes, and they never explain yeah. what he does or how he has money or anything. No. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Which is why it. I was like, I could have accepted if he was the robber. That would have been interesting. Yeah. It's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is to look at the world. Yeah. But I have documentaries for that, you know? Now. I would go in 1956. No, I would go in 1956 to see Seven Wonders of the World in theaters where they try to pick seven new wonders of the world and show you around. You don't get to see anyone do their dances. They're cool Spanish dances. Yeah. It was a long Spanish dance scene. I thought it was fun. Canton Plus is funny. Yeah. I liked him. I didn't love that Passepartout's only personality trait was that he's obsessed with women. But other than that, right. I thought he was funny. No, he was good. It was fine. Again, I just, I felt like it was pretty watchable. There obviously were some problems, but it's not the only movie this year with some major race problems. So, it, that you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to balance that. 
I don't love that it won, but I don't know. <laughs> you can't work up enough energy to be mad about it. No, not this year. I think that's acceptable. All right. Yeah, that's about all I got on Around the World in 80 Days. All right. And I think we just go through the rest of them alphabetically because I think we said no to all of them. We said, yeah, no, we're not mad about all of these other movies. So up next alphabetically is Friendly Persuasion. Friendly Persuasion. Been very excited to watch this movie since we first discovered it Mm -hmm. and saw the poster that said it will pleasure you in a hundred ways. So were you pleasured in a hundred ways? I was pleasured in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know if I was pleasured in a hundred ways. You haven't enumerated (laughs) the ways, so you're not quite sure how many. No, but I will say I was pleasured. (laughs) So the story of Friendly Persuasion is it's this family of Quakers who live in southern Indiana at the time of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. A tenet of their faith system is that they are nonviolent. And so it's sort of the test of that over the course of the war, because they live in a place where the Confederate army is encroaching on where they are. And so it's like, well, question one, what are we going to do if they come to our house? Mm -hmm. And then question two, the Quakers are also abolitionists and not in favor of the Confederacy. And so they have friends who are members of the Union Army and stuff. And there's this question of should we be joining up to fight because it's also the right thing to do. There's a lot of that going on. So you have... Gary Cooper is the dad and Anthony Perkins is the son, who are mostly the ones that get pulled into this drama. But I guess you don't have to enumerate all of the specific plot points because I think we'll probably talk about them. Yeah. What did you think of Friendly Persuasion? I liked it. I liked it too. I think I had hoped that it would be a little bit more about that conflict. There's large portions of the movie that are just scenes of them living their lives. And then at the end, it really drills down into what they're going to do because the Confederates do arrive. They have invaded, but you know, like the fair scene is very long and it is doing some work to sort of explain the bounds of the Quaker faith. I will say I was surprised as you did. I think I expected it to be mostly like a very serious drama about the moral implications of this all the way through. But I ended up really liking the fact that it starts as just like I I described the beginning of it as being 1860s Quakers. They're just like us. (laughs) Like it starts as just... Yeah, a movie about this family and the son has a conflict with their pet goose and the dad always is racing to church on Sundays with his friend and so he's desperate to get this faster horse and I just like that they really humanized them as a family in the beginning so that when you got to the stuff towards the end I felt really attached to them all yeah I just think that stuff went on for too much of the movie because then there's another scene too where they're basically like traveling salespeople, and so there's a sequence where they are going to sell their wares and they come across this farm where the man of the house has died and it's a woman and her three daughters it ties into the subplot of the horse racing but i don't know that you need it interestingly enough this is one of two movies where there's a scene where a bunch of women see a man and they just like lose their minds <laughs> yes <laughs> so true although i thought anthony perkins was really funny in that scene i liked anthony perkins in this quite a bit i think they do him a little dirty on the poster they're like the greatest young star since james dean and it's like don't lay that on tony perkins he doesn't well you can't lay that. that on him in a year of james dean movie like this is insane come on poster <laughs> don't do that to tony give him a few <laughs> years to be the best since james dean when james dean is still around yeah What I did like about this movie, 
I did like all the family relationships. I thought they were pretty interesting. I thought the sibling relationships between the three kids were almost Spielbergian in how yeah, well they were done. I loved the siblings. Yeah. yeah. The parents have a very sexual relationship, which I thought was fascinating for a Quakers film. are sexual, dude. Apparently. <laughs> And when they did get to the conflict and really dug into it, I thought that was quite good. And I would like to talk about, in particular, the ending. I think Anthony Perkins does some great work towards the end. But yeah, I don't know if you want to give your overall. I mean, similar to you, I think I enjoyed the earlier stuff a little more than you did. You're right that some of it, particularly, I think, even though there were good moments, the stuff with the daughters could have been either, I don't know if you need to lose it, but it could have been shorter. But I really liked it. I really was attached to the family. And then I liked that they played it like it was a turn because you get attached to them all. And then you're left to deal with all of these like everyone's making difficult decisions. And like you really care when Anthony Perkins decides to leave to go fight with them. And his mom is so upset about it. And that scene when he decides to go and basically she's like trying to do the okay if you go you're betraying me mm-hmm. don't come back and then he, as soon as he leaves she's she runs after him to give him a hug <laughs> and you're like they yeah. do really love each other i love this family i understand the difficulty of trying to stick to some sort of principled belief in very difficult times where that's not always easy to do i thought all of them were really good in it and i liked that it was finally a movie about how the confederates were not the good guys because i feel like we've been watching a lot of good guy confederate movies lately yes that it's very nice to see a movie about the union it is a rare thing i thought they let the confederates off a little easy those confederates were pretty chill in the end which is an interesting choice when you think about how the union is often portrayed in pro-confederate movies yes that's true (laughs) but yeah so in the end anthony perkins does decide to pick up arms and so he goes off to fight and eventually his dad goes off not to fight but to find him yeah he goes to find him and then before he finds him he comes across his best friend who has been shot And in a not great way, some guy comes and steals his horse and shoots him. Yeah. It's not like he's in the battle. Right. Gary Cooper does end up wresting the rifle from that guy and then just letting him go, right? And keeping with his principles. And then he finds his son who has killed another guy. And I I love that that scene. scene Broke my heart. And I thought Anthony Perkins was incredible in it because it is clear that him killing this man has broken him. Yeah. He is heartbroken that he killed this other human being. And it's beautiful. He's laying there and he's like, he's not that old. I killed him. And then he, the dad's trying to like drag him away and he doesn't want to leave this guy that he killed. Yeah. Oh my God. It's really good. Yeah. Oh, I will say, okay, as much as I, I just complained about how the Confederates were portrayed, I did yeah. appreciate though that all of the Quakers made efforts not to dehumanize the confederates so there's the little boy almost sort of like the little boy in shane right he's trying to glorify the violence he's very interested in like oh you got shot oh did you shoot these people and they're constantly being like they're human beings so there is a bit where Mm -hmm. the little boy goes did these shoot any rebs what are they like and the the soldier who is in love with the daughter is like they're just people like us it's so easy in a war to be like they're the enemy but no they're human beings i mean you're absolutely right that there's a scene where the rebels come to their house and the mom and the kids are there alone because gary cooper's gone off at this point and so they come and they're ready to hurt these women and kids to to get what they want but she's there like we have food we have this you can have it and de-escalating the situation and so then they end up being like yeah i mean mostly 
pretty chill during that encounter. And there's a hilarious moment where the mom, who's the most vigilantly anti-violence of all of them, is also the one who loves their pet goose. And the rebels are about to kill and eat the goose. And she ends up hitting one of them with a broom because she loves the goose so much. She's a pet. She's an absolute pet. She's a pet. And you're right that that might not be true to life, that it would have worked if you'd just been like, be our friends, rebels. But I, I do think they're sort of trying to use that as part of the thesis of the film that if people can try to approach conflict in a less violent way, then there might be more peaceable results, even though, you know, that's yeah. not always the case. Yeah, I'm not so much complaining about this movie as I am complaining about the lack of movies where Confederates are villains, <laughs> broadly. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't think we can complain about it because the union is definitely the good side in this one. Yeah. And there are very few of those movies out there. And uh, that line does raise the other point of they use thee and thou all the time, which is fun. As soon as it started, I was like, wait, what is this? And then I had to look up the fact that Quakers use thee and thou right. <laughs> instead of you. Because I think what people don't realize is thee and thou was the casual form of you. I think we use it now like yep. it's fancy talk, but you was the formal you so quakers are like we're all equals well and not just we're all equals but they intentionally are like we are not high we're all low everybody is a the no one is a you (laughs) it's sort of the the premise of it i really liked it i'm pro friendly persuasion all right i'm not con friendly persuasion i just think it also had some flaws well none of them are perfect films okay let's talk about giant Giant is a fascinating film. So Rock Hudson is a Texas cattleman who goes to Maryland to buy a horse. And while in Maryland, he falls in love with the daughter of the family who he's buying the horse from. And he takes the horse and the daughter back to Texas. Once they're back in Texas, we meet some of the other characters who live on his ranch, which, by the way, is enormous. He says it's 595,000 acres. And I was like, that is not a unit of measurement I can comprehend. 595,000 acres is 930 square miles. And just for reference, Rhode Island is 1,200 square miles. (laughs) (laughs) Texas is real big, y'all. It's real big. I mean, they do say that he has the second or third largest ranch in Texas or something. Like, he's supposed to be very, very successful at ranching. Yes. So when they go back to Texas, we meet his sister, Luz, who Mm -hmm. sort of runs the ranch while he's away, but also sort of while he's there. And a farmhand played by James Dean named Jet Rink that Rock Hudson hates for some reason. (laughs) Luz doesn't think Liz Taylor is cut out for Texas life. And she tries to both (laughs) break her and her horse, which leads to our fourth horse death of the podcast, if you oh, count the one in up horse death, which I do count. And, and to be clear, we're not talking about horses who die. No. Even though horses often do die in these situations. We're talking about people who die while riding a horse or, you know, like in the case of Seabiscuit, the car was a symbol for a horse. Right. <laughs> a symbolic so. horse. After Les dies, she leaves a small plot of the land that they own to Jet And he ends up striking oil on his land. So, like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too much into it, but the first half of the movie is really about Liz Taylor's character trying to bring Rock Hudson into the modern world to be a more modern man who sees people as equals who aren't just white, wealthy landowners. Right. And then there's a second half of the movie where we flash forward to their kids being adults and really dive into this ongoing conflict between rock hudson and 
Jet, who's now become super new money wealthy because he found oil. And yeah, there's an interesting race discussion happening in this movie. There's some interesting class stuff, but we can kind of dig in more. But that's sort of like the broad overview of Giant. Again, this movie is very long, so a lot of stuff happens in it. This is like the three hour and 20 minute one, I think. Yes. So tons happens. It's an epic. Indeed. I thought this was very interesting, this movie. Yeah. There was a lot in it that I did not expect. And it sort of comes in pretty early with like a, this is unexpected, (laughs) things that are happening with the way that Liz Taylor and Rock Hudson get together is fascinating. So he shows up at the farm. He's super rich. She's supposed to kind of marry this other guy, but I guess she's not that enthused about him. Mm -hmm. And so when Rock Hudson arrives, she's like, okay, maybe I could be interested in this Rock Hudson character. And she knows that he's from Texas. So she spends the whole night up researching Texas, reading everything that she can find about Texas. And then in the morning, she goes down to breakfast and basically just starts like shit talking Texas. (laughs) awesome way not shit talking texas so much as talking realistically about what happened in texas right but it's interesting because he's all offended about it and that's why it works right so she comes in and she's like so i was reading about texas i guess we stole that from mexico didn't we is the beginning of her statement (laughs) and he's like (laughs) no (laughs) haven't you heard of the alamo She's like, yeah, I read about the Alamo, too. I read about all these things last night, and it really feels like we just took their land from them. And he's can't believe she's saying these things to him as a woman in what I believe is the 20s, if yes. you look backwards from what's happening later in the movie. And so he sort of just likes that she's a straight talker, I guess. But then it's interesting because it becomes a huge point of contention through the entirety of their marriage. Right. But her character is great. Liz Taylor's character is fabulous in this movie. Yeah. So then they get to Texas and obviously there is a large Mexican population where they are. Mm -hmm. And he has real racist opinions about all of these Mexicans and how they're supposed to be treated. And everyone she meets, she's introducing herself and saying hello to all these people. And he's like, this is not how white women of privilege are supposed to interact with the Mexicans. Yes. And so you're right. The setup is a lot of the first half is her being like, come on, Brock Hudson, get with the times. <laughs> and like, realize that these are all people and also that women have thoughts and opinions. There's that interesting scene where he wants to discuss politics with all of his male friends. And she comes over and is like, oh, okay, I'm interested in politics. Tell yeah. me what you're talking about. And they're all like, oh, we're talking business. Oh, this is it's just men. Man oh, talk. would be interested. <laughs> men talk for men. And, she, and I love that she doesn't back down. She keeps being like, oh, what do you mean? I would be interested. I'm interested in that. I'm interested yeah. in politics. Tell me, why wouldn't I be interested? And they keep, they finally have to get to a point where they're like, this isn't for women. <laughs> <laughs> and she makes a scene and then Rock Hudson gets real mad. <laughs> Yeah. And then he comes upstairs at night and he's so mad. He's angrily, loudly taking off his boots so that she'll wake up and they can have a fight about it. Yeah. And then she apologizes. And I'm like, don't apologize, Liz. You're so right. And then she's basically like, I'm sorry, but also I was right. Yes. (laughs) And she was. She was right. I really liked the first half of the movie. And then I think it gets kind of saggy in the middle, as you might expect for a three hour and 20 minute movie. (laughs) It could have lost some of the middle for sure. And so like, yeah, I liked all the stuff with Liz Taylor. I liked her coming out and being like, the way things are done does not mean this is the way things should be done. Mm -hmm. 
and she's slowly transforming their place into a home, which I also thought was visually interesting because when they first come out, there's like this weird, big, gothic house that's just in the middle of the desert. In the middle. It's visually fascinating. Nowhere. It's like yeah. this black house that's just plopped down in just land. And over time, they build it out into like a full compound. I thought the stuff with James Dean was interesting, but sort of underdeveloped. Yes. I sort of got what they were signaling at, but it didn't fully come together. Yeah. But he does have an interesting arc because he starts the movie as this rancher. So when he's first talking to Liz Taylor, he's like, who gets hold of this much land unless they took it off somebody else? He's very much like these yeah. rich people don't deserve to have their money. It's just like, you know, they stole it and now they're in power and we're not in power. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, James Dean, totally. So then he gets this bit of land from the sister And Rock Hudson and his lawyers and stuff try to convince him to sell it to them because they're like, we'll give you twice as much money as the as the land is worth. We really just want to keep the ranch whole. You know, we don't want to be breaking off pieces of it. And James Dean is smart enough to be like, oh, the land will be much more valuable than whatever cash they hand me right now. So he decides to keep it. And then when he strikes oil after lots of grueling days trying to find oil, make something of this bit of land that he has. He strikes oil. I loved the scene, by the way, when he had first struck oil and he drives over to their house, still covered, covered in, in oil, oil. <laughs> just to be like, screw, I was right and you were wrong and I hate you, Rock Hudson. It's <laughs> hilarious. But then, of course, he is corrupted by the extreme wealth and, you know, capitalism of it all. Right. But he's also racist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he becomes increasingly entrenched in his racism, right? It's like we were talking about before the podcast, right? These hierarchies exist on the backs of someone is always less than you. So you can be rich if you're on top of someone. And if you're a poor white person, well, at least you're not a Mexican. At least you're a white person. Yeah. (laughs) And he's very in that mindset. Well, and I thought it was really interesting because at one point he's talking about how it must be at one of the times when he's drunk and ranting towards the end. Yeah. But he starts talking about how he did it himself and it was all his own hard work that made this happen. And I'm like, did we forget the part where you were given the land? Right. (laughs) Like, you got that land as a gift. (laughs) What did you have to do to make that happen? Not everybody just inherits land that has a bunch of oil underneath it. Right. So, but yeah, by the end, he's been racist the whole time. But it's just interesting because he has, at the beginning, this sort of class consciousness of, you know, the rich people don't deserve to be rich. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, when he's a rich person, of course, he thinks he does deserve to be rich because he's done it all of his own two hands. Yes, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. Right. Yeah, the other thing with his character is, at the end, he's been courting Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor's daughter. Mm -hmm. And it's revealed that this whole time he has been holding an intense torch for Liz Taylor and I was like oh really (laughs) that's been like his whole thing it made a little bit of sense to me but they definitely underplay it like all of the scenes where they're together he's clearly very interested in her and I I did really like the scene where he has her over for tea yeah And you're like, this is kind of lovely. You don't seem like a person who makes tea. So he's been fascinated with her. But I part of the weirdness is so much time has passed Mm -hmm. that I don't think that they haven't established his torch for her so well that, you know, 15 years later, you're like, he's still hanging on to it. It didn't come out of nowhere at me, but I also feel like it wasn't. It was undercooked. Yeah. That said, I did think he was really good. I liked him as the sad, drunk, metal-aged version of himself. (laughs) I thought there was an interesting running thing with the 
again, as part of the like trying to bring him into the modern age, there's this fascinating toxic masculinity fatherhood thing Mm -hmm. where he really expects his son to be the guy that takes over the ranch from the time that he's born he doesn't give a shit about his daughters there is a little bit of his one daughter is very much a daddy's girl and the son is very much attached to liz taylor and so while he doesn't expect the daughters to take over the ranch he's obviously closest with his eldest with the one that is the most like him Yeah. yeah who is interested in the ranch but there's yeah from the when they're really young he's like you know sons are what matter daughters are extraneous they have the and like their third birthday party or something he's talking about his son at the birthday party and not even mentioning that it's the daughter's birthday too Mm -hmm. the, the the twins birthday party which is like wow this is rough and then there's this scene where he gets the boy a horse and the boy doesn't want to ride a horse because he's not he interested really does dad not. forces him on and then he's like crying and making him ride around on the horse and liz taylor has to basically at that point she's like i'm taking the kids to maryland for a while mm-hmm. <laughs> let's get a let's cool off a little bit i love a story where the son wants to be a doctor and that makes him a disappointment <laughs> he's like yeah no son of mine will go to columbia and become In a doctor Harvard. yeah yeah and the, the racial stuff that's happening is also interesting in that scene because it's Angel, the kid who Liz Taylor yes. saved by getting the doctor to come and see him, who rides the horse all around and is like, I'm, I'm and you're like, oh, this is the son that he would have wished he had. Angel's <laughs> cool. I was devastated when Angel died. Me too. Why did he have to go to war? We saw him it's from so, being a little, it's rough a little out there, a little baby who Liz Taylor made sure got yeah. some care to being a upstanding young man but then there was actually kind of an interesting growth moment for rock hudson at on hell's funeral because he sees the suffering of on hell's family and he gives them a folded up i think texas flag yeah he comes down to where they live whereas at the beginning of the film he would never have gone down there yes and also so the other thing that happens is their son ends up marrying a mexican woman yep juana and I think Rock Hudson is more accepting at that point than I maybe would have thought. Yeah, he doesn't like disown the son or anything, which you would have expected him to do earlier in the movie. But it's revealed that he still has some prejudice. So they all end up going together to a hotel and like airport opening that James Dean's running. Yeah, Jed is opening a new hotel somewhere and he invites everyone from the old town to come down for the opening. Yeah, and he explicitly tells everyone, do not serve any Mexicans. And the son feels like it is a pointed attack at him and his wife, who presumably would be the only Mexican there. When they try to go in, a guard tries to stop them, and then she wants to get her hair done, and the salon is like, we will not help you. And the son has a confrontation with his dad about... Well, first, Jordy goes down to the salon and he throws something at the window (laughs) or the mirror in the salon and breaks it, which is so dramatic and I loved it so much. And then he tries to get into a fight with James Dean and gets his ass kicked. And then his dad has to fight James Dean. Rock Hudson Mm -hmm. is so tall. Yeah, he's a big guy. It's crazy. This is a surprise. I mean, I don't think James Dean is very tall, to be fair. No, but I think I looked it up. Rock Hudson's like six foot five. He's... He, That's he, really he's tall. tall. He's a tall boy. <laughs> Looks like a big Texas rancher. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's interesting because there's this great scene of conflict with them where Jordy the son, who's played by a very young Dennis Hopper. Yes. So, yeah, he has tried to confront Jet in front of everyone. It didn't go well for him. The dad goes into private to have this fight with Jet and ends up not really even hitting him because he's so pathetic that it's so not drunk. worth it. <laughs> 
then afterwards they're having this conflict and the dad's like you have to just sort of accept that this you knew this would happen when you married her right Mm -hmm. this is how people were gonna be and he's like i don't care about jet like Nobody gives a shit about Jet. He's crazy. (laughs) But other people should know better. And I'm disappointed in other people like you who should know better. And the dad is like, what? I supported you. (laughs) I went to fight him. And he's like, you only went to fight him because you were embarrassed that your son lost a fight to him in public, right? It didn't have anything to do with defending Juana. Mm -hmm. It was just about your own sense of manhood and being disappointed in your son. And so then there's this interesting scene at the end where they're driving home, it's Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor and Juana, the daughter-in-law, and their grandson. Else. Yeah, the grandson. And so they're driving, they stop off at this roadside diner. And of course, the diner owner is super racist and has this, you know, we reserve the right to refuse service to anyone mm-hmm. signs and doesn't want to let Juana in. He walks over to their table And by Rock Hudson and the rest of them just sort of pretending nothing is wrong, they're able to shield her with their whiteness right at this table. And the guy is willing to let them stay, even though he's still giving them dirty looks. And then a Mexican family walks in and sits at the table and he's like, you guys have to leave. This is not for you. You got to go somewhere else. This restaurant is, you know, whites only, basically. And... Rock Hudson, for the first time in this whole movie, is like upset at the injustice of it all. And he gets up to confront the guy and is insistent that he let these people stay. And then Rock Hudson ends up getting into this huge knockdown fight with the head of the diner. And it becomes a little bit slapsticky, honestly. <laughs> but he loses the fight because he's, you know, like an old a man, 60 year old man at this point. And the diner owner is equally large. Yeah, they were it was, he was big. They were big guys. And then finally, at the end, Liv Taylor tells him that he's always wanted her. He's always wanted her to look up to him as like, you know, her hero yeah. or whatever men want their wives to think about them. And she was like, that time watching you get beaten at that diner was the first time I've ever felt like that about you. <laughs> it's nice. And then they look at their two grandchildren, one of them very white, one of them mixed race. And it's like, ah, oh, yes, this is the future. Yeah. Rock Hudson does still call his half Mexican grandchild a slur in that scene, which is And not she's like, what great. the fuck, dude? She's like, I thought we were making progress. <laughs> he is making progress. Yeah. He's not a hundred percent not racist. He's not the there. End. But that's the thing. Movies often make you feel like, oh, we solved racism, that's the end. It's it still in the, process. Yeah, yeah, for it, sure. <laughs> we're, we're it's getting process. better. It's all getting better. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. I think the class element is interesting at the end. I think it does really reflect the idea that wealthy white people play on the race fears of the poor to maintain power. And that kind of gets ingrained. But it does still Mm -hmm. feel a little bit at the end like, oh, old money knows better. We can solve this problem. And you're like, I'm not sure about that. And back in Maryland, they have a black manservant. And there's no interrogation of what's going on with that so it's interesting i have been thinking a lot about this movie and i think it'd be interesting to unpack it even more that's based on a book that was written by a an east coast jewish woman and apparently when she wrote it all these texans were like what is this east coast you know (laughs) what do you know about our ways texas yeah. So it's interesting to think, too, what she was trying to communicate through this book. I, overall, I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. Like, I didn't know what it was going to be about, and it was thought-provoking, at the very least. For sure. 
I think I agree with you that the first half is more solid than the second half. It sort of devolves into this super melodramatic stuff at the end that I was kind of into. I loved Jordy going and throwing the thing at the mirror and then I loved the fights in public. I was obsessed with Jet passing out when he was supposed to give his speech. Oh yeah. (laughs) He's so drunk. And they're like, all right, and here's Jet Rink with his (laughs) thoughts on the night. And he just... (laughs) Collapse his face first into his well, dinner. Also, even when the uncle brings young Luz there to see him and he's talking about how much he loves Liz Taylor and then he just falls over the edge of the stage and he's just like, he's gone. I liked it. It was silly, but I liked it. So yeah, Giant. What a fascinating film. I'd be interested to read this book. Yeah, that's probably really interesting. Shall we move on to The King and I? Sure. So the brief version of The King and I is it's about... This real-life British woman, Anna Leon Owens, she gets hired by the king of Siam, which is now Thailand, right, to come and teach his children. So she comes, she brings her son with her, and they go to this strange new land, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's about kind of the culture clash and the interesting relationship that she develops with the king, because they're very different people and have very different opinions on a lot of things. And then eventually... By the end, she's going to leave and the king dies and they've formed this bond. Interesting bond with each other. Yeah, exactly. But it is also a musical. Mm -hmm. So all of that is happening while they're singing and dancing. Yay. So what did you think about The King and I? So I hadn't seen this movie before and I thought it was good. I was obsessed with the costumes in this movie. They're gorgeous. (laughs) Mostly Yul Brenner's costume. When you first see him... And he's wearing those sparkly little slip-on shoes. Come on. Yep. (laughs) There's also a scene when they host the British and he's wearing this great little hat. Loved his little hat. Uh Yeah. I mean, he's everything he wears is so sparkly. Yeah. I love it. It was really good. She also wears these amazing, enormous dresses, hoop skirt things. So those are pretty fun. I love Deal Brenner in this, I think, overall. He's a very physical performer in this film. He's doing a lot with his body, and I I appreciate it. But yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting enough story. They end up trying to bring this place into not the 21st century, obviously, but like the 19th century or whatever century they're in <laughs> yeah and you know there's a little bit of like ooh, colonizer yeah. with that but ultimately like the main thing is they're trying to communicate to the king that you shouldn't marry people against their will and slavery is bad which to be fair i'm yeah. on board for there is that interesting cross tension of i don't love that it's this white western lady being like you need to subscribe to western values but when the values that she's teaching are slavery is bad you're kind of like Okay. <laughs> I am on board. And with again, that. it is another movie where the North is the good side and the Civil War. She's talking sure. about how the Civil War is happening over in America. She's a big supporter of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. She thinks everybody should get on board and be pro Lincoln. And so it's he's interesting because he is always trying to impress her in ways where he's like, you know, oh, you think that's cool? Then I, I'm that. Yeah. Think, that's cool that's me and so he he hears that she likes lincoln and he decides that he wants to send lincoln a bunch of elephants to support with the the war effort which yeah. <laughs> is delightful but it's also at the time he's not putting together that the slaves he has are also probably not a good thing <laughs> so that all gets communicated 
Yeah. They're hosting the British who are coming and he's concerned that the ambassador is going to tell Queen Victoria that they're savages and the British are going to come in and take over the country. So he wants to Mm -hmm. demonstrate to the British that he is a civilized leader. And as part of that dinner, this woman who he has married against her will, who's in love with another guy, puts on Mm -hmm. a, a retelling of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And at first I was like, what is this going to be? I'm very nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nervous about this. But it was cool. It's awesome. It's actually awesome. I mean, it's like, <laughs> I had forgotten how it, like we got to that point in the movie. I hadn't seen this movie in, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, right. The Uncle Tom's Cabin musical. <laughs> how is this going to go? And then you get into it and you're like, it's beautiful yeah it's like really cool and by the end she gets off script and starts talking about basically how bad the king is for taking her hostage yeah and then he's like you know ah, zip it and she gets back into it but right. yeah i'm he's I'm, bad y'all i'm guessing i don't know it appears to be thai or like southeast asian theater conventions that are yeah. used to tell the story and it's great. I love it. I want to watch more like Thai theater. I was It's really beautiful. The costumes are oh my incredible God. again. Their headpieces. The style of it is neat. Yeah, yeah. the masks. The way they dance. Super cool. Well, their, their the forms. way they dance. I loved it. And then the king is like, it is immoral for the king to die trying to get his slave back. <laughs> and you're like, I don't think you understood the story, king. Right. But then, so at the end, it's revealed to the king that she has been fraternizing with this man she's still in love with. And mm-hmm. he dies of embarrassment? <laughs> I mean, kind of. Here's what happens. They, they find out she has been seeing this other guy. They catch them both. And then he is like, the only fitting punishment for this woman is for us to beat her. I will beat her myself because this is what you get for this crime. Yeah. And Anna is there being like, you're too good to do that. That's a horrible thing to do. I believe you're better than that. Mm-hmm. And that's how she shames him into like, then he can't do it. He drops the thing that he was going he to beat off. her with and he runs away. And then Anna is like, all right, this feels like a break in our relationship, right? That was really stressful. So I probably should just leave. And three weeks later or whatever, as she's about to leave, they come to her and are like, the king is about to die because he basically gave up on living after that <laughs> night. <laughs> and like it's refuses to eat and refuses to drink. <laughs> so she goes and sees him on his deathbed. And they have a little bit of like a making up and he transfers his authority to his teenage son who decides that his first act will be that no one has to bow to the king because there's this running Mm -hmm. thing throughout that no one is allowed to have their head be higher than the king's and so he's always jokingly making anna get into lower and lower positions so that her head will be lower than his but yeah the fact that he's so embarrassed (laughs) that he can't live anymore is an interesting ending Yeah, I think my favorite bit of physical comedy in this that Yul Brenner does is so in the scene where he's introducing all of his children and he has like a bunch of children because he has a harem. There's a part where like one kid comes out late and and bows and to get the kid into place, he picks the kid up and then he's like kind of flipping the kid back and forth to figure out how to put the kid back down and And I was like, this is adorable. I like that scene a lot. I think it's such an interesting introductory scene for him because it's super humanizing. Because at first you're meeting this guy and he has all these 
wives and you're like, oh, what's going on with all these wives? And then he's like, I'm going to introduce you to all my kids. And he seems like very severe and we're not sure we're going to get along with him. And then there are a couple of kids that come out. One of them comes out running for a hug Mm -hmm. and he has to stop them because we're doing like serious (laughs) introductions. (laughs) We're being serious now. And then he's making silly faces with some of the kids. There's just like a cool, you know, you're like, okay, this guy's not so bad he's he's an interesting character he seems complex i don't know that we get Mm -hmm. even as much of him and what's going on with him internally as i would like but yeah and i really enjoyed yule's performance yule's great and the the songs and the dancing i do like the scene when they dance together yeah but yeah while it is not perfect on the race front i do feel like it's kind of trying and it's interesting well he's great You can't really argue with the primary message of slavery is bad. You just can't. It's a great message. It's a great message. And we got a lot more of it this year than I'm used to. Yeah, that's true. Anything else on the King and I? My only other note is her son was a useless character. I know, right? What was the point of that kid? (laughs) He just sort of disappears as soon as they show up. He's just there so they can sing that first song together and then he's you know, he pops back up at the end like, Mother, aren't we leaving? And you're like, oh, you're still here? Yeah, this guy? I thought he died. I don't know. Okay, well, let us allow the anti-slavery message to carry us through into our final nominated film, The Ten Commandments. So I don't know how much retelling of this we really need to do. People probably are vaguely aware of this story. Of the Passover story and Moses. Yes, the Passover story. So it's basically, you know, Moses is born as a Hebrew slave in Egypt. His mother puts him in a basket because they're going through killing, you know. Hebrew firstborns because of a prophecy. Right. And so she puts him in a basket. He winds up at the palace. The, like, queen... Basically, I was a little confused about the relations of all of the royals in this one. Uh, um, royal. She might be the sister of the yeah, pharaoh. Something like that. It's all confusing, um, too, because the Egyptians were all inbred. So who knows? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, a royal type lady whose husband is dead finds him and decides this is my child now. No one will know that he is not my child. And so they raise him as no a one will prince. know. Hey, where'd you get that full baby from? Don't worry uh, about it. I've just been keeping him in my bedroom, but now I'm ready to show him to the world. So they raise him as a, a prince of Egypt, and he's basically raised as brother to Ramses, who is the son of the king. And they get to adulthood, and they're trying to jockey for position, and it all comes out <laughs> that he is actually a son of a Hebrew slave. He decides he wants to go see what that's all about, and is pretty quickly like, Slavery is that ain't it. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not for us. This we is don't terrible. Like this is terrible. <laughs> Actually, what I thought was interesting about it and did differ. I did a lot of comparisons to the animated Prince of Egypt film mm-hmm. in this. Even before he knows that he's Hebrew, he's not really cool with them torturing the slaves. Well, yeah, he's in this town not. working with them. He's a great guy. He's Moses. He's the best. He could never be bad. <laughs> but what I'm saying is in the Prince of Egypt, I feel like that Moses doesn't really care until he finds out that he's Hebrew. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, let's not get too into the character relations in this movie. So, yeah, he ends up having to leave town, go to the desert. He's supposed to die out there, but he ends up coming across this tribe and he meets a woman and he marries the woman and they have a kid and things are going well. And then he goes up a mountain and God speaks to him through the burning bush Mm -hmm. and tells him that he has to go back into Egypt and carry the Hebrews to freedom, basically. So he does go back and... Ramses isn't pleased about it. 
and there's a lot of plagues and then finally there's a plague where all of the firstborn sons die and uh, Ramses is really upset about it. And so he lets them go. And all of them are leaving Egypt. They're walking out. And then Ramses' wife, who I can't wait to talk about, convinces him that he should go after Moses because he did this to their son, basically. And so he does go after them. They get to the Red Sea. Moses has to part the Red Sea so that all of them can cross and not get murdered by the pursuing Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And then they do get across and the Egyptians die in the waters. Yeah. And then... They go out to the desert and then they are walking around for a while in the desert and Moses goes up a mountain and he doesn't come down for 40 days and they can't figure out why he's still up there. So they like get into some idol worship and stuff, whatever. (laughs) And then he comes down with the Ten Commandments that God has written onto the stone tablets. And then he's like, this is what we're supposed to follow. And everyone who isn't following this, you're no good. God doesn't like you at all. And so that's the Ten Commandments. Yeah, Charlton Heston and a return of our pal Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner, still, I, mm-hmm. I love the thing about both Yul Brenners, all the Yul Brenners, every Yul Brenner. He's constantly standing wide leg with his hands on his hips because I think he's a tiny man. Akimbo, <laughs> so yeah. it makes him look bigger. He's like, look at me, I'm big, and you're like, you're not big, Yul Brenner. You're not big, you're little. <laughs> you're little. You're so cute. Okay, so thoughts on the Ten Commandments? I mean, it's real long. It's it's extremely long. There's no getting past the fact that it is three hours and 40 minutes long. It's real long. I thought there were like strange, almost narrative gaps in, in this movie for being so long. There are things that happen. You're like, wait, so he finds out he's a slave and then he just becomes a slave. How does anyone feel about that? Does everyone know? Did he tell anyone <laughs> what's going on? And then his girlfriend just shows up and she's like, you're not a slave anymore. So did he tell her? Did she just find out like what was everyone's reaction well she to this? she knew i mean That's did he true. tell her that he was gonna go live as a slave <laughs> yeah i think he probably was just like i'm a slave i gotta go see what this is all about and he just took just off didn't tell him. but the reason that he knew that he was a slave is because she's actually the one who found out about it i also thought that was that was interesting and i don't i'm not super familiar with the actual biblical story but sure. the way they find out is this this servant woman is just like, he's a Hebrew. Look at me. I have this Hebrew cloth. And you're like, is that evidence? <laughs> it's not like it has his name in it. I don't know. <laughs> I guess the, the issue is like, they don't want someone out here sowing the seeds of doubt, right? I feel like the- I don't, know. I don't think that's how it any, plays. <laughs> I don't know how it plays, but I also feel like monarchy is so fragile- <laughs> And the stuff that people believe about bloodlines and all of that nonsense. You just don't want anybody out here talking about rumors. Sure. But it played like everyone who came into contact with this piece of evidence immediately was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is true. And you're like, I don't know that I would be convinced (laughs) by that. Right. (laughs) Me personally. I thought all of the actors were in different movies. And I know you mentioned you want to talk about Nefertari and... Ann Baxter. I did not care for her performance, but this is the performance she gives in everything. <laughs> I've seen her in a couple <laughs> of other things. Again, she is a villain in the Adam West Batman series. Fun fact, she is the only actor to play two separate villains in that series. Ooh. And in both those characters, she is dressed head to toe in orange. 
for no reason. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. She's also the murderer in an episode of Columbo. And this is like her level. This is just how she acts. But how did you feel about her? I didn't mind her. I mean, I guess probably if I'd seen her do this exact same performance four times, <laughs> then I might have changed my opinion. I thought her character was pretty interesting, or at least her relationship with Moses was pretty interesting. Because they're in a relationship when this all begins, before his whole quest, <laughs> like his life really changes uh, after they've already been together. And so she's trying to jockey to get him to be able to take over as Pharaoh because he's not exactly the right descendant. But if he proves that he's better than the guy who is the descendant, then maybe he could take over. Who knows? It doesn't seem like, at least the way they portray it, that the Egyptian monarchy is exactly hereditary. Yeah, the guy who is in charge now is going to pick his successor person. Yeah, successor. I was intrigued by their relationship and how difficult it would be if something like this happened to the guy you were dating at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Things get really different and weird. And she's like, this is really not what I was expecting. We can we can have the life we want if you'll just make these certain choices and he won't make the choices that she wants. But what I was most intrigued by, and I did feel bad for her that she was forced to marry Ramses because... She couldn't marry Moses and Ramses doesn't seem like that cool of a dude. Yeah. (laughs) So that sucked for her. But then I thought there was this fascinating dynamic set up where, especially since you sort of know what's going to happen because it's a story you've heard before. I liked when it became clear that she was going to have to marry Ramses and he was going to end up being responsible for the death of her son kind of later on down the line, right? Which is a fascinating dynamic because I do think he really cared about her. But you can't just ignore the fact that you're not actually the prince of Egypt. (laughs) Something has to be done about it. And so I just was intrigued by that dynamic. And I actually liked her going to meet his mother. That was kind of interesting because when he hears this rumor, he's like, I have to know if it's true. I'm going to go and find my mother. And she also goes there to be like... Don't you don't want to ruin Moses's life by telling him that he's your son, right? You guys should just get out of here and then he can continue to live as the prince of Egypt and no one will ever have to know about it. And then the fact that once he tells her basically that the son is going to die because of the way that they have all been acting mm-hmm. and she doesn't believe that it's the case. And she's like, if you really love me, you will keep my son from dying because obviously you're the one with God's ear. Yeah. (laughs) So then when the son does die, it's a huge betrayal for her. And then she convinces the Pharaoh. She's like, if you were a real man, you would go fight Moses because he killed your son. And what are you doing about it? And so she sets up the conflict that results in like the second and even more final defeat of (laughs) Ramses and his people. I think I disliked her performance so much I couldn't engage with her as a character. She was so over the top and vampy in a way that I was like, this person is ridiculous. But I can, yeah, I can see what you're saying. So I was also trying to figure out, you know, the historical accuracy of the Moses story in general. And apparently Mm -hmm. in the Bible, it's never, the Pharaoh is never named as Ramses II. That is an interpolation. Ramses II is Ramses the Great. He's one of the greatest pharaohs in Egyptian history. And I I was uncomfortable as well with this movie's decision to completely undercut the greatest ruler of this civilization's history because he like sucks from the beginning. So as much as it's better in some ways that Moses is against slavery prior to learning he's a Hebrew, there's no arc for their relationship because 
Moses is always better than Ramses. Ramses is terrible at everything throughout the movie. He's completely incompetent. He completely yeah. overestimates himself. Well, and you also don't feel that they ever really had a close relationship. Yes. Which you want them to, so that later on it's more of a betrayal that right. Moses comes and, yeah. I will say the scene where God inscribes the tablets incredible was awesome <laughs> yeah how cool was that it looked really neat uh, i don't know how they did that it was awesome yeah this big flame come out and just writing on the tablet all the things and god in yeah. his big booming voice being like thou shall not kill <laughs> crack yeah it's awesome i liked that when the plagues were starting ramses was like no gods are real basically was his perspective <laughs> Well, also, why could everyone turn their staff into snakes? I don't know. But that happens in the Prince of Egypt, too. Apparently, that was a common magic trick of the day. (laughs) Making a staff into a snake. Cool. But I did like that Ramses was like, there, you know, there's no God. There's only science. And, you know, you can't just say that this is going to happen. There has to be an explanation for it. I was like, you know what? Fair enough. I will also say I liked when in the staff to snake scene, then the way I guess they knew that Moses was right is his snake staff ate all the other snakes, but they couldn't figure out how to shoot that. So it's just all reaction shots of people like, oh, oh my God. Oh my God, he ate all the snakes. <laughs> Jeez. And you're like, oh wow, that must have been horrible to watch. I like that they put a full Passover Seder into the movie. Like with the yeah. questions and the why is tonight different than all other nights? Why do we eat bitter herbs? That was kind of neat that that just was in there. Yeah. Oh, this is also the other movie where a bunch of women see a man and just lose their minds. Yeah. Because when he's traveling through the desert, he comes across an oasis and it is just like eight sisters. <laughs> from this group that all are you know it's hard to come across new men they're not engaging with a lot of new people very often i don't think in ancient egypt and in civil war indiana men be scarce men be scarce fair enough but yeah they do get really excited about him i am obsessed with the scene of all of them leaving egypt like just the Mm -hmm. scale of it I mean, the the crossing the Red Sea is amazing and the special effects are cool and it won for that. But before that, when they're in Egypt and they're all gathering to leave, just how many extras and all of these various people and the different animals and the different, like how everything looked and how everything was moving. I just couldn't believe they got it done. It's a classic sort of Cecil B. DeMille thing where it's like, we'll get 10,000 extras. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, oh my God, I guess we'll do that. How did you do this? But it looks really cool. I was very impressed with how that looked. And I loved all of the animals. I thought it was interesting. It's way too long. It's too long. It has many issues. But I liked that there's the long montage scene about how horrible slavery is. And I was like, apparently audiences need to hear this. I mean, once again, I am not arguing with the anti You're not taking up the pro-slavery side of this message of this film. I agree with that. Yeah. Slavery is bad. Slavery is bad. And a majority of the films nominated this year are kind of about that. Anyway, that's the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. It's big. It's bold. It's a hell of a production. It's a classic Cecil B. DeMille work. It's long as hell. It's so long. But I will say, I enjoyed it more, I think, because I watched Up to the Intermission one night, and then I stopped, <laughs> and I watched After the Intermission the next day. Yeah. <laughs> 
Check out Ann Baxter as the murder in Columbo. It's an okay episode. Yeah, that does sound fun. <laughs> Except that you hate her in it, so it's not really much. Well, of a no, I think I think her performance doesn't not work in Works those other in that things. Context. But if you think that the Ten Commandments should have the same tone as Batman with Adam West, that's an interesting perspective. Maybe I do. Maybe I do. Think I'm not that. saying you can't say that. I'm just saying maybe I came to the movie thinking it should have a different tone than Adam okay. West yeah. Batman. It's certainly a thought. Up for debate. Anyway, Yul Brenner. Always having to be told that slavery is bad. You gotta let Yul Brenner know. Yep. But he's gonna look pretty good while being told that slavery is bad. So <laughs> he does. There's a lot of shirtlessness. He's looking great. Yeah. I also thought Charlton Heston looked like he'd been working out in that scene where he's like stomping the mud. We did talk about this. There's a lot of surprisingly ripped people in all of these movies. I don't know if fitness had really become a thing recently, but there's a really ripped guy in Friendly Persuasion. Charlton's looking and pretty ripped. And are also coming off <laughs> yeah. a lot in these movies. You got to compete with TV. That's what we learned in 53. That's so true. You got to compete so with TV. So true. Okay. So that's the movies. Very interesting crop, I thought. Yes. Uh, it does bring us to the question of, is there anything else out there that should have been nominated? You already teased a bit of a thing earlier in the episode. I did. So like we said, the box office almost one-to-one mirrors the Best Picture nominees. But something that has become culturally important that was not nominated this year for anything is John Ford's The Searchers, which apparently Mm -hmm. is one of the greatest Westerns of all time. And according to the AFI list, is one of the greatest American films of all time. To put a fine point on it, the 12th best American film of all time on the most recent AFI list. So we watched it because, you know, we had to do our due diligence. Uh It's John Ford. It's John Wayne. It's one of the greatest films of all time. How'd you feel about it? So I guess real quick, The Searchers is a story of a family who, they're out west. It's post-Civil War, as it always is. Yeah, their uncle comes home finally. He's been away for many years, even post-Civil War. He's a former Confederate, John Wayne. And they are concerned about Comanche attacks. And so a band of men from the town go out to try to prevent or intercept a Comanche attack and while they are away the Comanches have tricked them and they come and attack their homesteads and so John Wayne and the adopted son of this family come back to find their homestead burned out and they believe that both daughters have been kidnapped and so they go on a years long quest a multi-year quest to try to find these daughters and the adopted son would like to find them and save them And eventually John Wayne feels they've been living with the Indians for too long and would like to find them and shoot them in the head. Yes, because the fact that they've been living with the Comanches means they are no longer white. He says that. He does. Those are the words. And so they do eventually locate the younger daughter. Yeah, the older daughter early on in the film, before they've been on the road for years, he comes across her her body. Yes. And she's been, the implication is, raped and murdered Mm -hmm. but then they continue searching for the younger daughter for many more years yes and they eventually do locate her she's been adopted into the comanche tribe and they eventually rescue her and the adopted brother has convinced john wayne that he probably shouldn't shoot her in the head and he doesn't but then he leaves because i think he he couldn't bring himself to kill her but he also can't bring himself to live with her so he walks away at the end so that's the plot of the searchers so i had been reading about this movie before i watched it okay 
Yeah. I didn't read anything about it. I went in blind. That might have been better. Because I was like, okay, this movie sounds like it might be kind of racist. Just a thought. Why is this movie considered so great? And what I read is some people feel that this film is not an endorsement of the John Wayne character, that it is a presentation of a type of person who lived out West and is a critique of that person. Hmm. And that's an interesting perspective. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I could possibly get myself to a place where I could believe John Ford wasn't trying to endorse it. I definitely don't get to a place where I feel like it's a critique. Like, mm-hmm. if anything, they were like, this is just how it was. And that's the vibe of it. But it doesn't feel like a critique to me. There is a character in it that is not in agreement with John Wayne's character. And it is Martin, the adopted nephew type, who is one eighth Native American. Mm-hmm. So that starts the movie with like John Wayne do- is not, he doesn't like him because he knows that he's one eighth Native American. And not then he's white like enough. forced, <laughs> not white enough. And then he's forced to work with him the whole way through. And he's the only one who is any sort of like, I guess you could call him kind of like a voice of reason <laughs> throughout. But I don't know. What did you think? It just was so uncomfortable and bad to watch yeah even if it was a critique well so to me this falls into a category of movie which we've kind of talked about before i think it's it's very similar to like the travis bickle conversation of when you present something what does a movie need to do to tell you that thing which we hopefully all agree is bad is bad Is it fine for a movie to just present a type of person who is a racist psychopath and just be like, that's the way people can be? Or does the movie need to comment on that some way or another? And then if the movie doesn't comment on it, is it implicitly endorsing that, right? Right. At a minimum, it's telling you that this is something of interest and something that should be paid attention to. But yeah, I'd like to see it be condemned a little bit more. I do think the Martin character is interesting. It's also interesting because at the end, it's not only John Wayne's character who feels that the younger daughter can't be brought back into white society. Martin has a love interest who says the same exact thing. And he's like, Mm -hmm. you people are crazy. But then he sort of comes back and is going to end up with that girl at the end anyway. Yeah. Martin. He is. That whole subplot was strange. And then, yeah, the thing that I also didn't particularly like about this movie is, even with Martin, right, they play the Native American characters for comedy at times in a way that I thought was super unsuccessful. Martin accidentally marries a Native American woman and treats her so horribly. And John Wayne thinks this is the funniest thing that's ever happened to a human being. And you're like, what is the movie saying about this? What am what am I supposed to think the movie is telling me about this? I think the movie thinks it's funny. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's funny. And then that woman is just very unceremoniously killed. By kind of Union soldiers. <laughs> yes. Even though we're post-war, they're like blue-coated government soldiers that end right. up killing this woman. I don't think this movie is critical enough of any of this for me to uh, view it as a critique. I will say in this movie's favor, super well shot. Yeah. John Ford, I guess, I don't know if he just figured out this technique or something, Mm -hmm. but he's obsessed with it throughout the movie. He keeps shooting from inside a building out through a door. So all around the door is black because it's backlit. And then you can see the beautiful scenery through the door. It's 
It's great. Yeah, it looks beautiful. They shot yeah. this, I did, I did write it down, in Monument Valley. Okay, yep. Beautiful. I mean, beautiful. It's funny. I think our take home of all of these Westerns is going to be like, man, America's beautiful. The West <laughs> is pretty. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the story, but oh. it's true. Gorgeous out there. Yep. But I don't know. You watch it and you're like, these people are so upset. They're viewing these people as their enemies, but it's like you came here and killed everyone and took all their land. And now you're like, but why are you attacking us? What did we ever do? They sort of pretend to be balanced about it because finally when they do meet Scar, who's the chief that they've been chasing, he tells them that both of his sons were murdered by white people. Mm -hmm. And so he's taken, you know, many men for each of his killed sons. And so you're like, I guess people are supposed to be thinking about that. Like, oh, maybe we're not so innocent. But I- yeah, I mean, they're still clearly uh, portrayed as the villains, though. Yes. It's a little bit of humanization. Yeah, I told you the other thing I liked about this movie is there is a split second where another one of their relatives after the initial raid happens is like, hey, John Wayne, can you please not take this young man out to just continue to recreate these cycles of violence that are ruining everyone's <laughs> lives? Could you just maybe like, you know, say like, oh, I don't know, man, this is the outcome of everything we've done. So we have to put a stop to it. And John Wayne's like, absolutely not. I'm going to recreate all the cycles of violence. and I'm going to make it worse. Yep. I mean, I appreciate that inclusion, too. I just I don't think it's enough of the movie. No. And I mean, it feels like people who are fans of this movie are watching it as John Wayne is a Western hero. That is what people are supposed to feel about John Wayne, right? Mm-hmm. And so I find it hard to believe that people are not mostly on his side. Right. Even if he's maybe a bit fur goes a bit further than they would. Like, I don't know that most people watch this movie right. are like, yeah, you should shoot that girl in the head. Exactly. But I feel like a lot of people watching it are probably like, ah, but I understand why he's so... <laughs> upset or whatever and then feel that he's redeemed at the end when he doesn't shoot her in the head and it's like no he's still a terrible person he's awful he's bad guy real bad guy i didn't like it (laughs) no i again it's it's going to be interesting as we watch more and more westerns but it's hard to wrap the mind around why other than visually, why right. this is considered one of the greatest American films of all time and one of the greatest Westerns of all time. Like Stagecoach we got. Yep. Stagecoach was one point in the favor of the, the Western pro column. Yes. And I also understand how like if no one else had ever shot a beautiful landscape from inside a house, how you as a filmmaker would see that and be like, I got to do that 100% of the I time. I got so many ideas. <laughs> yeah. I get that. But in terms of the narrative elements of this movie, I ooh, I don't know. Yeah, it's mostly a yikes for me. And also, John Wayne had definitely gotten to the parody version of John Wayne later in his career at this yes. point. And he is very much what you'd expect when you think of John Wayne. Okay, anyway, that's enough on the searchers. I don't get it. People who love Westerns, that's a different type of person from me. That brings us to what should have won. What's your instinct? I think my favorite was Friendly Persuasion. Okay. That's probably what I would have picked. I mean, the epics are impressive. (laughs) They really did a lot of work on those. But I also feel like the epics leave you more room to be like, why is this in here? (laughs) They lift and stuff where you're like, oh, I don't know about this. You probably could have cut it. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I guess it would be Friendly Persuasion. But as we already discussed, I wouldn't have been mad about any of these other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I 
think I, so I went back and forth of my idea of just saying no or yes to all of them. I also thought about saying yes to all of them. I think the one I was most marginal on and where I'm still going to land is giant. As much as it's obviously a bit more ungainly, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there and a lot to unpack. Mm -hmm. And it probably is the one I've thought about the most in the couple of weeks. So I've been watching stuff and since I watched it, I liked friendly persuasion. I just think it wasn't as much about the issue I was interested in. But that's because it was busy pleasuring you in other ways. <laughs> Did pleasure me. Not probably not in a hundred ways. What a what a crazy poster. I think that's fair enough though. Giant is a super interesting movie. I don't know that it is hundred percent successful at whatever it was trying to do, but it's very thought provoking. I'd like to read the book. Yeah. And Liz Taylor was great. Liz Taylor was great. Okay, so did the Oscars get it wrong? Sure. I agree. I think the Oscars got it wrong. It's a strong sure. I don't hate Around the World in 80 Days as much as its continual appearance on worst winners would have had me believed I would hate it. That's fair enough. But I mean, you know, there are lots of things on the worst winners list that we have our quibbles That's what with, we're learning. So. That is what we're yeah. learning. But that said, Around the World in 80 Days was definitely my least favorite of these five films. So I think they got it wrong. My humble opinion. Yeah. I I just, I don't have any real energy to fight anyone about it. That's right. Fair enough. That is fair enough. So let's take it on over to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Obviously not alive in 1956. No. So does anything jump out at you as a thing that he could have played well? Uh, James Dean? Yeah. I mean, it is the most obvious. Anthony Perkins, the greatest thing oh, since. Oh, I would have liked that. I would have liked that also. Anthony Perkins' role in Friendly Persuasion. Those two feel like he would have been really good in them. Is there a place for him in something like The Ten Commandments? I mean, he's more Jewish than Charlton Heston. He is way more Jewish <laughs> than Charlton Heston. It doesn't really feel like his type, though. No, Charlton Heston's not really playing levels. No, no, no. If you want levels, that makes me really feel like it should be the Anthony Perkins friendly persuasion role. It's so sad when he kills that other man. He's so sad. He does such a good job in that scene. He really does. He's great. He makes you cry and he makes you laugh. It's the whole range of Anthony Perkins experience (laughs) in that film. All right. That feels right to me. I don't think I would put him anywhere else. There's no room for him in The King and I, I'll tell you that much. No, there's not a lot of adult white males just generally in that movie yeah. and we're not putting him in probably okay jake so in conclusion do you see yourself coming back to any of these i mean probably not they're so long you they're know mostly so long i might rewatch the end of friendly persuasion just to see anthony perkins in that scene again it was a it was it's a so really good, good scene guys. i would show friendly persuasion to people mm-hmm. i would watch it with people but yeah. I don't know that I'm going to need to rewatch it anytime soon. Yeah. I didn't have a bad time this year, but also I'm not like they're ready just, to go rewatch too long. all this stuff. Yeah. Well, that's why Friendly Persuasion and The King and I are the only ones that you can even think about rewatching because they're only two hours. Yeah. Well, I'll say the, they're too long and they're too flawed. Like, again, I will rewatch Judgment at Nuremberg, but that is a three hour movie that is all the way through excellent it's so goddamn good there's nothing i would cut out of that there's stuff i would cut out of all of these movies 
Which is fair enough. 1956, you need better editors. Mm-hmm. Interesting movies, though. I was more interested yeah. in these movies than I was in let's 1953 movies. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay. So have we learned anything? What makes the best picture? A travelogue? Should that be added to the list of a things travelogue? that make uh, Well, this picture? is a tough year because we know the Academy loves epics, but studios gave the mm-hmm. Academy so many epics. They were like, look at all this scope. What are you going to yeah. do? And they crumbled under the pressure. <laughs> There's scope everywhere. We don't know what to do with all this scope. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just hard to get into the headspace of people in 1956 watching Around the World in 80 Days and it being an event picture and like, oh my yeah. God, I've never seen anything like this part of the world before. As I was watching it, that was definitely happening for me intellectually. I was right. like, I bet if it was 1956, this would be so cool. But it wasn't enough for me to be like, and that makes it so cool for me now. I was yeah. mostly like, can we get to the story, please? <laughs> okay. So, I mean, they love an epic, but that's not news to us. Yes. Patterns? Angry White Guys? John Wayne? Yeah. James Dean. <laughs> James Dean. Angry White Guy. Biopics. Not a single biopic. Well, The King and I is based on a real woman and her life. That's true, but it's not the whole story of her life. Is the the Ten Commandments a biopic of Moses? I mean, I I guess we could consider it that. (laughs) It's his whole life. It's true. It is his whole life. That's an interesting question. A point of debate. No, like traditional biopics this year, it seems like. Right. Which is interesting. Yeah. I don't think there were any biopics in 53 either. Maybe the 50s don't like biopics. Low on biopics. That could be interesting. But is it worth the trade-off to get so many epics? Maybe maybe we will learn to appreciate biopics as we watch the films of the 1950s. Yeah. If that's the trade-off. Now that said, even though we have no biopics, we don't really have any original ideas either. Is Friendly Persuasion based on a book? I thought so. Because... Giant is based on a book. The King and I is based on her books. Obviously, The Ten Commandments is based on a book. Yeah, Friendly (laughs) Persuasion is a novel. Okay, no original ideas. Well, that's okay, though. It is. I still think an adaptation can be good. Of course. It's when you get into, like, remakes of everything that you start to be like, okay, this was already a movie. Do we really need another one of the same story? Well, that's really a modern problem, I think, because, of course, they needed remakes in the past because you didn't have home video (laughs) but now it's like i can watch every version of an affair to remember stop why stop Stop making new affair to remembers yeah exactly (laughs) but yeah if there's no home video every 20 years remake a story because no one saw the last one who would remember one thing that's not in our outline but of course we should note horse death another horse death horse death number four horse death number four horse throw number five Mm mm-hmm and there were multiple riderless horses showing up at home this year. That's true. Yep. <laughs> horses. It's a popular trope, people. Okay. That has to be enough. We've talked forever. Yes. What are we talking about next time? We are talking, and I'm very excited about this, the 70th Academy Awards, or the films of 1997. The nominees were As Good As It Gets, The Full Monty, Goodwill Hunting, LA Confidential and Titanic. What have you seen? I have seen three of these. I've seen Goodwill Hunting, LA Confidential, and Titanic. You? 
I have also, I think, seen three, but it is as good as it gets, Goodwill Hunting and Titanic. There's a chance I've seen The Full Monty, but it was so long ago that I can't remember it at all. Okay. Well, I will say, this is exciting. This is a new decade for us. We have not done a year in the 90s yet. I think our only remaining decade now that we have not touched is, well, the 20s, but there's only two years for that, Selena. Yeah. And the 40s. Oh, come on. We need some 40s movies. Can't wait. But uh, I think there's a chance we might make some enemies in this next episode. I'm, that's why I'm looking forward to it. Not to spoil our conversation. If we haven't made some enemies already, which we may have, we might make some enemies next episode. That's the plan. In the meantime, though, while you await that, if you have comments, questions, concerns, thoughts, I want to alert us to any more film horse deaths, that would be helpful. You can reach us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com, and we are on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod. If you're enjoying the pod, please tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. 